Good to see all of you out tonight, even with the Seahawks game and everything. Very proud of you. Um, it's great to be with you this Thanksgiving week. A belated Thanksgiving uh, wish for you. Um, as one of your elders, I'm very thankful for you. That's one of the things that uh, all your elders are thankful for is, is, is all of you. Uh, so good to see you out tonight. Uh, as Aaron said, in our time uh, tonight, we get to te- take a step or two further in uh, this year-long trek through the book of Hebrews that we're calling the Sermon God Bro. More specifically tonight, we're going to get to work our way through a message that I've entitled Exposed, in which we'll be studying chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 of the book of Hebrews. But before we go any further, I want to give us some context and set the stage a little bit for where we'll be going in that text, as we often do. As I've said before, as we've said before, the book of Hebrews was first penned, was first authored somewhere around the 60s AD, so probably about 30 years or so after the time of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Geographically, this is all probably happening uh, in and around Rome, where most, if not all, of the apostles like Peter and Paul have gone from the scene, and they've either been imprisoned or they've been killed and martyred or they've died off some other way. Now, the Christians in Rome, these first recipients of the letter of Hebrews, were mostly of Jewish descent, and as the years bring them further away from the time of Jesus and further away from the leadership of the apostles, uh, they're now feeling threatened. They're feeling pressured and tempted to turn back to Judaism, to their Jewish roots, and they're tempted to renounce their uh, once-held belief that Jesus is that long-promised Messiah who was prophesied to come and save God's people from their sins, to lead them as their Lord and God, and to bring them into a time of peace and rest. And so in light of his audience's doubts, the author of Hebrews writes this letter. He writes this sermon called the book of Hebrews, and he writes it to encourage them on a couple fronts primarily. First, to warn them not to give up to encourage them to hold fast to what they'd been taught about Jesus and what they'd been witnessing concerning him in years prior. The author of Hebrews makes this argument throughout the first several chapters leading up to our text tonight in these ways. Uh, In chapter 1, reminding these doubting Christians that Jesus is better than the angels, that they very highly esteemed. We talked about that at length the last time I was up here. In chapter 2, the author of Hebrews warns these original readers and hearers and us by extension that we ought not miss the great salvation from our sins that is offered only through Jesus. That's chapter 2 of Hebrews. In chapter 3, he reminds us and them that Jesus is better than Moses. In, chapter, or in verse 3 of chapter 3, uh, it says even that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. We have to remember who Moses was to these folks. Moses being this Jewish leader who they had trusted in as God's servant, who had led the Jewish people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and eventually into a land that God had promised them. All this that Moses did, and yet Jesus is better than Moses, says chapter 3 of Hebrews. It's a big deal. Then in these first several verses of chapter 4, which Pastor Aaron covered last week, the author of Hebrews encourages his readers and hearers and us with the good news that God's rest is still available to those who persevere and who endure in their faith until the end. And so that's where we find ourselves tonight as we get ready to start. And so if you didn't listen to Pastor Aaron the first time, uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 4, and our, I'll read our passage for us in verses 11 through 13, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in a little bit further. 
This is the word of the Lord from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Sound City, may we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that we get to gather tonight and open your word, which says about itself that it is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus. Your word is powerful, and it does not return void, but accomplishes everything that you intend it to. And so that's my prayer for us here tonight, that your word would accomplish exactly what you intend it to in each one of us, personally and for us as a church. I pray that you would soften our often hardened hearts that so naturally reject your truth, and that today you'd give us spiritual eyes to see attuned ears to hear, and wisdom to receive your good counsel. I pray also that you'd give me just the right words to teach tonight, Lord, such that you would be glorified in this teaching and we would be transformed by this teaching from your strong word. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So let me ask us a question. Let me ask you guys a question. Who in the room has ever had some kind of surgery before? Okay, lots of hands. You guys didn't beat the 11 o'clock, but lots of hands went up. Uh, So a fairly common experience. Many of us have experienced some kind of surgery. And um, at one point or another, if we haven't already, we probably will. I haven't had a lot of surgery in my life. I have had a couple things done. I had oral surgery to remove some very painful and impacted wisdom teeth back in my college days. I also had surgery to remove my tonsils when I was a little kid. They had become infected and were causing all sorts of problems. And I've talked to many folks in the last week as I was getting preparing for this, uh, talked to many of our folks just about surgeries that they had as well. And I know lots of you have had surgeries. A lot of you know our much beloved Hackett family. Brittany and Kyle's sweet daughter Delaney is only 11 years old and she's already had almost as many surgeries in her young life. Then there's Doug and Linda Freiburg. You guys know the Freibergs, many of you. uh, Doug has just recently been the recipient of two brand new knees through surgery. And so he's very proud of that. Um, There's also my oldest son, Dylan, and our good friend, Danielle Martin, uh, who were both born with the same congenital heart defect called transposition of the great arteries, a condition that would have quite literally taken their lives were it not for the surgeries that they had to fix their hearts. We could probably go on for quite a while. You had a number of hands go up as I asked the question. We could go on for a while talking about all the surgeries we've had. But the point in all this is that those of us who have had a surgery or two in our lives, we have something in common. We've all been wounded faithfully for the purpose of rest. We've all been wounded faithfully for the purpose of rest. We've all been pierced or cut into so that some infection or brokenness or Other problem could be exposed, and then eventually over time that we might experience lasting relief and rest from that pain or brokenness that initiated us getting the surgery in the first place. Well, the central proposition, the big idea of our text tonight is a little bit like that. The big idea of our text tonight is that God's word and its wounds are intended to result in rest. God's word and its wounds are intended to result in rest. 
And we'll see this truth play out in all sorts of ways as we go deeper into our three verses tonight. And we'll start heading that way now by looking at Hebrews 4, verse 11, which says this. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, you guys have been, many of you have been around for a while, so so you'll know the answer to this. When we see a therefore in Scripture, that's a clue that we're supposed to be doing what? Yeah, we're supposed to ask, if we see a therefore, the idea is that we're supposed to be asking, what's the therefore, therefore? (laughs) Right? What's the therefore, therefore? We should always ask that. It's code word. It's a code word. It's code language. And what it means is that what was said prior to this point in the text must be used to fully understand what's coming next in the text. When we see therefore, that's what we should be thinking. And so in verse 11, it's saying that because of what's been said in the previous verses, we ought to now strive to enter God's rest. Now, those of you that were here last week, you'll recall from Pastor Aaron's sermon that for the better part of the first 10 verses of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews is discrediting what was probably a common but mistaken belief about God's rest as it's described in the Old Testament. Now, remember, it's Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews was first addressing with this sermon, and so they know all the Bible stories about their forefathers entering into this promised land that God had set aside for his people. And they know all about the rest from God that was to come from God bringing them into this land. But the author of Hebrews is saying here is, no, 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 don't don't miss this. That promised land rest, that was just a shadow. That was a shadow of the fuller and lasting rest that is still available in God through faith in Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 4.1 and then again in 4.9 say something about this, where it says, the promise of entering his rest still stands. That's from verse 1. And then in verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's trying to show them this wasn't about the promised land rest. This is something different that's still available to us today. So then in verse 11, where it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, it's saying now that we've established that there's this fuller, lasting rest that's still available, we need to strive to enter into that. That's what's happening here at the beginning of verse 11. But there's a ton of questions that even come up just from that as we begin to understand verse 11, not the least of which is, what's this rest? What, what is this? And now we talked about it a little bit last week, but what's this fuller rest that Hebrews 4 is talking about? Well, what's foremost in the author of Hebrews' mind is salvation through faith in Jesus. That's what he means when he's talking about entering God's rest is salvation through faith in Jesus. He's talking about us resting from our efforts and works done in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn our own salvation. He's talking about the peace and the rest that comes from placing our hope for the forgiveness of our sins fully in Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf rather than on our own good works. Hebrews 4.3 says, it's those who have believed, not those who have worked. It's those who have believed that enter God's rest. And so the author of Hebrews, he's, he's pleading with these Jewish Christians who are doubting the truth about Jesus and the great salvation that he brings. He's pleading with them to stand firm, to not miss out on having their sins forgiven and to not miss out on entering God's rest. He's pleading with them to give up their doubts and not miss out on eternal life with God starting now. Now, this is another point that we touched on briefly last week, but I say eternity with God starting now Because God's rest, the one that we're being told is still available to you and I today, it's what I'm calling, it's it's an already inaugurated rest. 
It's an already inaugurated rest, meaning that while it's a rest that we'll only fully experience in eternity after Jesus comes again, it's a rest that persevering Christians get to experience the first fruits of even now in this already inaugurated rest that the author of Hebrews is making available to us today. It's a rest that begins the moment we're washed clean from our sins when God gives us faith in Jesus. It's a rest that starts the moment we're given the Holy Spirit to lead us into obedience to God for the rest of our lives, which all happens at the moment of conversion, at the moment God saves us. And it's this present rest that's part of, uh, this present part of God's rest that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now to a culture like ours bent on immediate gratification, that present part of that rest sounds pretty appealing, doesn't it? So that's a little about the the what of God's rest that we're talking about here in Hebrews 4. But what about the who? Who gets to enter God's rest? Well, when we look at the whole of verse 11, it gives us some clues in answering this question. Again, verse 11 reads, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And so we've got these two contrasting ideas here. We've got striving to enter on the one hand, and on the other hand, we've got disobedience. Striving to enter and disobedience. But what's interesting about those, I think, is that They both kind of sound like works language, don't they? Is the author of Hebrews really telling these doubting Christians to earn their salvation? No. No, he's not doing that. If so, that'd be the opposite of what we've already said about entering God's rest, which was that it was about relying on God's work through Jesus, not on our own works for our salvation. Hebrews 4.10 confirming this where it says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his, which is comparing the rest that we can enter with the rest that God experienced on the seventh day of creation from Genesis 2. So what he's telling these Jewish Christians and us is not about the works required of those seeking to enter God's rest, but about the heart and about the character of those who have entered God's rest through faith in Jesus. Huge difference between the two. He's talking about not the works required of those seeking to enter God's rest, but about the heart and character of those who have entered God's rest through faith in Jesus. There's an old saying that goes something like this. Maybe some of you have heard it. We're saved by grace alone and through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Somebody said it. We're saved by grace alone and through faith alone, but the faith that saves, a true faith, is never alone. Meaning, a saving faith, a true faith in God through Christ will always be accompanied by good works. A true faith in God through Christ will always be accompanied by good works. That another way, good works flowing from a changed and converted heart will always be the overflow of the life of those who have submitted their lives to the lordship of Jesus. That's the nature of this striving that's going on here in verse 11. Maybe you're asking, how can I test this? in my own self? How can I test this myself? And that would be a great question for you to ask, and this is how I would answer. You can ask yourself, is the general pattern of my life marked by striving to follow Jesus? Is the general pattern of my life marked by striving to follow Jesus? Is that something that I just can't quite help 
but to do is to attempt to follow Jesus, imperfectly for sure, because none of us follows him perfectly. But our lives ought to generally be marked by striving and good works as the natural overflow and the increasing desire of our hearts if God has truly saved us. So while good works don't earn favor with our God, they do show us and the world that we belong to him. Let's take a minute and let's look and see what else we can find in the scriptures about this pattern of striving and persevering that overflows into the lives of God's chosen people. This is how the scriptures encourage believers to live. From Galatians 6, 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Matthew 24.13, but the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. And then right here in the Hebrews passages that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks, we've got a few as well. In Hebrews 3.6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. See also, we are his people that will enter, enter his rest. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, which is of salvation through faith in Jesus. Then in Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence in Jesus firm to the end. So who gets to enter God's rest? Who gets to enter God's rest? It's those he's saved through faith in Jesus, who he's then given his spirit, who then in turn motivates in God's people a life of striving and good works and enduring and perseverance. So that's who gets to enter God's rest. Harder question. Who doesn't get to enter God's rest? Hebrews describes a different heart and character of those who didn't in the past and won't in the future enter into God's rest, doesn't he? The Bible makes it clear that we're not part of God's people in rest if we hardened our hearts against God and live lives astray from him. That's from Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. We're not part of God's people and rest if we have an unbelieving heart. In other words, if we don't believe in, follow, and trust in the God of the Bible as the general pattern of our lives. That's from Hebrews 3.12. We're not part of God's people and rest if we're disobedient to him and his word as the general pattern of our lives. That's from Hebrews 3.15-18. And then in the very next verse, in Hebrews 3.19, it speaks of those who will not enter God's rest because of their unbelief. And then finally, it says in Hebrews 4.6 and in 4.11 that those who live a lifestyle of disobedience to God will not enter his rest. That's a pretty hard word from God's word, isn't it? That's a pretty hard word. But as we move into verses 12 and 13, we're going to get to talk at length about that fact that God's word is often strong and very piercing in nature. So let's go there now, starting with verse 11 again for some context. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So again, at this point, the author of Hebrews, with the heart of a pastor, that's his heart here, is pleading to his readers and hearers and to us to not live in disobedience to God like so many others have and still do. 
to chase after Jesus, to give our lives to him, to put our hope in him for the forgiveness of our sins, and then to endure in these good works till the end of our lives, and in doing so, enter God's rest. And then he says something that seems at first glance quite disconnected from that in verses 12 and 13, where he continues saying, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Anybody else just feel kind of like, what? Right, as we transition from 11 to 12 and 13, there's all this talk about being exposed before God and about the nature of God's word and what's all that have to do with him pleading with his readers and hearers to strive to enter God's rest in verse 11. It seems like the author of Hebrews is either a little bit ADD and got distracted or he's made like this 90 degree turn without even signaling and that he's now talking about something else entirely, but he's not, he's not. What the author of Hebrews is doing here is anticipating one of the more likely responses of his audience to his pleadings with them. The author of Hebrews knows that many of his readers and hearers are doubting and on the fence about whether or not they really believe that Jesus is the Savior and the Messiah. And he knows that there are still others in his audience that are probably thinking something like this, like, eh, I'm Jewish. I'm probably pretty good with God. I've got a general belief in this God of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm, I'm sure I'll enter his rest. I'm sure I'm saved. And the author of Hebrews in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4 is wanting to respond that anyone, to anyone who might make such foolish assumptions, and he's wanting to say to them, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Scholar N.T. Wright in his commentary on Hebrews restates these verses in a way that I think will be really helpful for us in making some sense out of this very stern warning. Rightly, I think, he supposes that the author of Hebrews means to say something like this in verses 12 and 13. If you imagine you can slide along in virtual unbelief and slip by unnoticed into the rest that God has promised his faithful people, God's word will find you out, will pierce you through and through and disclose what's really going on, the secret thoughts, the secret plans and intentions of your heart. Everyone must sooner or later give an account of themselves, and at that moment, if never before, all will be revealed. Kind of gives me chills when I say it. I mean, wow, right? Verse 12 and 13 is saying something like what Galatians 6, 7 says, that God will not be mocked, that he cannot be a just God and not judge sin and sinners, and that what we sow, we will certainly also reap. But hear me on this. Hear me on this. The author of Hebrews' sharp word here is not harsh. It is not uncaring. In fact, it's totally the opposite. It's a warning and a wake-up call of a loving pastor to his people, begging them to soberly question their state before God. Hebrews in these verses is asking me, is asking you, are you a rester? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus who died in your place for your sins as your substitute to save you and bring you into eternal life and rest with Jesus starting now? 
Sound City, are you resting in that truth of God's word tonight? Verses 12 and 13 are affirming what Psalm 139 tells us, that God knows when we sit down and when we rise up, that he discerns our thoughts from afar. Verses 12 and 13 are retelling the truth of Job 34, verse 21, that says that God's eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all our steps. All our steps. Verses 12 and 13 are also retelling the truth of that great Christmas proverb as well, which says, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so have faith for goodness sake. Isn't that how it goes? Something like that? That's my little Santa Claus is coming to town joke for you. Uh, But these verses are telling us something pretty serious, aren't they? They're telling us something pretty sobering, aren't they? That God's word is like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon that lays us bare, that fillets us open, exposing us, exposing us with a blade that is so sharp that it can separate even the most intricately interwoven spiritual parts of us, our soul and our spirit, exposing us with a blade so piercing that it can expose our most intricately interwoven physical parts as well, even dividing our bones from their marrow. These verses, they say to me, they're saying to each of you, you've been found out. You've been found out. God knows what's in your heart concerning him right this second, and you can do nothing to escape his gaze and nothing to escape the exposing truth of his word. Now, that'll be one of two things for you tonight, probably. It might be terrifying to you, or that can be profoundly comforting. And I just ask you to honestly wrestle with, which is it for you? Which is it for you? There's a Latin phrase that's been used since the time of the Reformers to describe in a positive way some of what verse 12 and 13 is teaching us here. The phrase is quorum Deo. And it means that we live always and ever before the face of God. Quorum Deo means we live always and ever before the face of God. Verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 4 and Quorum Deo remind us of the bigness and the greatness of our God. It reminds us of the truth of Colossians 1, 16 and 17, that everything that exists, past, present, and future, was created through Jesus and for Jesus, and that in him all things hold together. All things hold together. We are always and ever living before the face of that creator God. Quorum Deo, along with verses 12 and 13, remind us of the truth of Hebrews 1.3, that if he, he upholds the universe even with the word of his power, we live always and ever before the face of this creator God. Quorum Deo and our verses here in Hebrews 4 tonight remind us of the truth of verses like 1 Corinthians 10.31 and Colossians 3.17, that we're to center all of life on Jesus and do everything that we do for his glory. Quorum Deo and verses 12 and 13 remind us of the truth of Colossians 1.10, that the only appropriate response to the, this all-knowing, holy God of Scripture being described here in Hebrews 4, the only appropriate response is worship. Every day, all the time, in everything that we say and that we do, Quorum Deo reminds us of what the author of Hebrews has been pleading with us to do, which is to submit to and then strive to follow Jesus as the overflow of our faith in him, in our every word, thought, deed, 
and motive so that we might enter God's rest as persevering sinner saints saved by Jesus' sacrifice for us rather than by any effort of our own. Then we get to the end of our passage, at the end of verse 13, and the author of Hebrews feels the need to put an exclamation point on what he's already said so far by reminding us that not only are we already fully exposed before God, already laid fully bare by his word, but that one day we will also have to give an account of our lives before him. The author of Hebrews here is making his final strategic move in his argument, in his effort to sober us up and then to encourage us to trust in and hold fast to a real faith in Jesus. Now, among the original hearers and readers of the book of Hebrews, it's not unlikely that some that were reading this, some that were hearing this sermon, were probably just fine with the reality of Coram Deo. For those whose hearts had been really hardened, they may have been just fine with this idea that God personally and through his word knows all and reveals all. So perhaps for them, they didn't much care that they were fully exposed before God by the scalpel of his word and truth. And so here, the author of Hebrews is betting that perhaps for these with such hardened hearts that this final reality check might finally get their attention with his strong word here reminding them that no matter how much they may think they're putting it off, each one of us, each and every one of us will someday have to give an account for our lives before God. And so with the piercing double-edged sword of God's word, the author of Hebrews, with love in his heart for his people, not desiring that any should fail to enter God's rest, sharply reminds them of the exposing truth of God's word about the account that each of us will surely give for our beliefs and our thoughts and our words and our deeds before a holy God. Sound City is one of your elders with love in my heart for you, just like the author of Hebrews had for his first readers and hearers, I also feel burdened to remind you of the account that we're all going to have to give before God for our lives. And so I want to take us through just a few of many, many more passages that we could be going through that will help illustrate the strong, loving, yet sharp word of God that is meant to move us to repentance and faith and to to lives of quorum Deo, to living before the face of God, to the glory of God in all that we do. So let's look at a few verses together. Concerning the account we all must give, Revelation 2.16, where Jesus is speaking to the churches and their members, says this, Therefore repent, and if not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Well, that sounds uncomfortable. Then there's the word of the Lord in Romans 14, reminding us at verses 10 through 12, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then there's the even stronger word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where Paul wounds us with the sharp and piercing word concerning Jesus' second coming and God's sure judgment of us all, saying this, 
Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's a tough word to share with you. That's a tough word to teach. It's not easy to talk with you about God's wrath, his judgment, about the account that we're all going to have to give before him for our lives. But I know, as the author of Hebrews did, that God's word and its wounds are faithful wounds and that they're intended to bring us into God's rest. And that makes it worth it to teach these harder words for us. Said another way, sometimes it takes a strong word to create a soft enough heart that will be receptive to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, that he came to save sinners like you and like me. If we would just submit our lives to him, trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, and then with repentance seek to follow after Jesus in all we do, even if imperfectly so, on this side of our eternal rest in God. So what does this passage then mean for each one of us in here tonight? How are we to go about applying these verses to our lives? Well, that's kind of going to depend on where each of us is at in our relationship with Jesus, isn't it? Now, for most of us in here, we're probably in one of three places in our relationship with God. Category one, you're a persevering Christian. Category two, you're a doubter or a seeker. Category three, you're stuck in unbelief. A persevering Christian, a doubter or a seeker, or stuck in unbelief. And for each group, our response to God's faithfully wounding word tonight might look a little bit different. Now, if you're in the first group, you're a persevering Christian. And for you, the verses that we've looked at tonight might sting a little, but they're primarily a comfort and an encouragement to you. If you're in this group, you probably can't even imagine the thought of walking away from God. You love Jesus. You follow him daily, but you know you don't get it right a lot of the time, and that reminds you of the great salvation that Hebrews 2 talks about and your inheritance, your stake in that. And that turns you to awe and to worship as one undeserving of the enduring faith that you've been given as a gift of God's grace by no effort of your own. And we're encouraged with words like that when we look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this gift of faith, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you're a persevering Christian, that's really encouraging to you. And you're thinking, it's unbelievable that while we were God's enemies, God gave us faith in Jesus to save us. It's truly humbling. So that's the encouraging part. But perhaps there's a warning in Hebrews 4, even for the persevering Christians among us in here tonight. Perhaps today's reminder of the powerful and exposing nature of God's word is meant to convict you concerning your own personal relationship to God's word. 
His word which has the the power to discern your darkest thoughts and the most sinful intentions of your heart and to wash them clean day after day after day if you'll let his word do so. Ideally, as persevering Christians, our pursuit of God's word would look something like what we see in Psalm 1, right? Let me read these verses for us from Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. See also the word of God, the holy scriptures. And on his word, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Christians, Is that what your time with God's word looks like? Is that what your time with God's word looks like? Because if I'm reading this right, then if we would sacrifice to prioritize reading and studying and meditating on his word, then we'd look something like this tree in Psalm 1 that's planted by a stream of living water, a tree that is perpetually nourished, always fruitful, and whose leaves never wither. The psalmist says this blessed man prospers in all he does as he's perpetually fed by, instructed by, discerned by, corrected by, sustained by, and led in all things by the word of God. Christians, do you have a Psalm 1 pursuit of God's word set out as a priority in your life? Have you submitted yourself to God's word and given it its proper place of authority in your life? It's been well said that you can do one of two things. We can do one of two things with God's word. We can either take our feelings and our emotions and our unchecked desires and attempt to stand in authority over God's word, or we can put ourselves under its authority, subjecting our feelings and emotions and desires to the filter of God's word. The truth is that God's word can feel like a piercing sword cutting us to the bone, separating bone from Marrow, or with time and attention and priority and commitment, his word can become for each of us life-giving, life-altering, and a source of living water that flows over every root of our lives as God works through it to bring us joy and contentment and wisdom and peace and rest. God's rest. So that's the persevering Christians. The second group in the room tonight is the doubter or the seeker. And if that's you, then the author of Hebrews was writing these God-breathed verses for you, perhaps more than anyone else. And the great risk for you is that you would think too little of God and his word. And you would mistakenly believe that having one foot in both worlds would somehow keep you in God's good graces. Maybe you've got a foot planted in some kind of loose belief that there might be a God out there somewhere, or that all faiths and gods are the same, or something like that. Maybe you've got another foot planted firmly in the lie that there's more wisdom in not coming to any firm conclusions about God than to take the scriptures at their word. The truth is that in our day, in our culture, the quest for God and ultimate truths is very much in fashion, but to claim that you've actually stumbled onto the actual truth about any of life's big questions in our culture is considered bigoted and arrogant and utterly intolerant And so if you're in this group, if you're a doubter or a seeker, we're glad you're here. And the world around you will affirm your doubting in your seeking like crazy. 
But God himself and his living and active word, the Bible, leaves zero room for such ambivalence. Similarly, if you're part of the third group in the room tonight, those who are stuck in unbelief, who don't believe in God or in salvation from your sin's penalty through Jesus, then God's word leaves little room, little comfortable space for your worldview either. Now that sounds harsh, but whether you're a doubter or a seeker or stuck in unbelief, I would offer to you this good news. I would offer to you that God has you here tonight so that he can faithfully wound you like a surgeon with a scalpel who means to cut and pierce you so that he might heal you and then bring you rest. For our own good, for my own good, for your own good, God is willing to pierce us, to pierce you with words like those we've been studying in the book of Hebrews so far that speak regularly and often of the unbelievers and of the disobedient who in every case we've seen all fail to enter God's rest. Because of his love for you, God is willing to pierce you with strong words like these from Romans 3.23 where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's willing to offend you with words like these from Acts 4.12 where it says, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name other than Jesus under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're a doubter, if you're a seeker, if you're someone who's stuck in unbelief, because of God's love for you, he's willing to wound you faithfully so that you might know this, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of Jesus, the only son of God. So that you would know the truth of his living word, he's willing to cut you with this truth. From John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The God of the Bible is willing to wound and then comfort you with this sharp word as well, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And our loving God, who also wants to be a great comfort to you, wants to comfort you with this reality, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, having paid the penalty for your sins, then you'll be saved. Then you'll be saved. Doubters, seekers, unbelievers, non-Christians, these strong words of God are meant to cause you to recognize yourself as a sinner, just like me, just like the rest of us in the room, a sinner in need of a savior and a new Lord other than ourselves because we make pretty terrible gods. God's powerful word is meant to lead us into repentance and to change our hearts. It is meant to lead us into a life of Coram Deo and a life of peace and rest in Jesus regardless of what circumstances may come in life for the rest of our lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness? That's what 1 Peter says. That by his wounds we can be healed. That we who were once far away were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of our souls if we have given our life to Jesus and put our faith in him. Do you believe that? Because if you do then you're a new creation. 
according to God's strong word in 2 Corinthians 5. If you believe in Jesus and have put your faith in him for salvation and submitted your life to him as Lord, then you are no longer under condemnation because of your sins. You're no longer guilty before God, according to Romans 8.1. That's what God's strong word teaches. And we could go on all day proclaiming the cutting and piercing yet comforting words of God that he means to use in us today to soften our hearts, to save us, to bring us into ever deeper relationship with Jesus, to lead us into lives of quorum Deo and to give us rest, God's rest. Sound City, God's word and its wounds are intended to result in our rest. God's word and its wounds are intended to result in our rest And according to Hebrews 4, that rest is still available to you and me today. And that's good news. Amen? Well, with that, uh, let's turn to a time of responding to God's word and maybe to what he's placed on our hearts tonight from these verses in Hebrews and the other scriptures we looked at. And so, as we often do, we'll respond in several different ways. First, we'll respond through giving. And so if our financial stewards are available, if they'd go ahead and come, uh, we'll get ready to respond through giving. Now, the scriptures say that God loves a cheerful giver, and we want to be among those who don't worship the finances God's given us, but who worship with the money that God's given us. And so uh, we'd love for you to give to what God's doing around here. If you're our guest, um, they're under no obligation to do that, uh, but you're welcome to as well if you would like. Another way that we'll respond tonight is through considering some discussion questions drawn from the message that we just walked through together for our consideration uh, and response in our community groups throughout the week and in personal reflection as well. I'll read those for us. They're also in your handout. Number one, what does it mean that God's word and its wounds are intended to result in our rest? Is that a comfort to you and why or why not? Number two, What are some of the heart and character attributes used by Scripture to describe, first, those who will enter God's rest, and second, those who won't enter God's rest? And are these lists a comfort to you? Why or why not? Number three, how does the truth of Coram Deo that we live always and ever exposed before the face of God change the way you think about how you live out your faith in Jesus day to day? Is Coram Deo a scary thought to you or an encouraging one? And then explain your answer. Number four, what does your current reading and studying and meditating on God's good yet piercing word look like today? And in light of Psalm 1 through 3, what maybe should it look like and what is God asking you to do differently about it? Number five, are there truths in God's word in which you know he's trying to faithfully wound you, but you aren't willing to submit to God's authority through his word? If so, share and explain your answer to your group. Another way that we'll respond tonight is also through communion, where all Christians, including any of you who may have just put your faith in Jesus tonight, are welcome to come and receive the Lord's Supper. The bread that we'll receive reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, and the wine or juice reminding us of his blood shed for us. And then we'll also respond through song in worship to Jesus, and we'll do that right now after we pray. And so uh, I'll ask you to join me. Go ahead and stand, if you will. And then I'll pray. And then we'll get about responding. Let's pray together. Lord God, your word 
and its faithful wounds are good. And they are meant to give us life and rest. And as we turn our hearts now to respond to your loving, if convicting word, let us all do so as those who are striving and persevering in living out our faith, in living out Coram Deo for your glory, for our good, and for our lasting rest in you. And I pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.